If you are new to the understanding of keeping Yahweh's Sabbath, you probably have never heard of lunar Sabbaths, but it is rather likely that you will eventually find someone who practices and teaches it at some point. We have made every attempt to understand the doctrine of the lunar Sabbath, and as with anything, we desire to test it to the Word of God. We hope to offer a fair presentation of this doctrine of the lunar Sabbath. We wish to only offer valuable thoughts compared against the Word of God for those in the faith to consider and test. What we have found, just as the traditional Christian understanding of the Sabbath departs from keeping the Sabbath on the day that Yahweh made holy, so does the lunar Sabbath. The intent of this teaching is to help equip the body of the Messiah with a scriptural basis of keeping the Sabbath on the seventh day of every week and to establish why any deviance from that is unscriptural. Often there are different levels of what constitute as proof in the minds of people. Some require just a little bit of evidence to support a doctrine or a belief and others require a lot of evidence to support a doctrine or belief. This should go without saying, but clearly, we need to be really careful that we are relying on real evidence to support our belief rather than an interpretation of evidence. We have discovered that in order to really believe in the Lunar Sabbath doctrine, one would need to rely on a certain level of highly interpretive evidence rather than real proof. Yet, strung throughout some Lunar Sabbatarian literature are some very strong terms such as conclusive proof. When examining this conclusive proof, it becomes clear that the evidence offered is far from proof, let alone conclusive. We need to be cautious of any broad brush use of terms like this and be a good judge of whether or not what is really proof. It is easy to be swayed by such strong terminology, so we should be willing to make our own judgments about whether or not such evidence is really proof. So, at the heart of where we stand regarding this doctrine is determining what truly constitutes as a scriptural fact and what is merely a surmising or a theory which requires one to believe a series of possibilities rather than real facts. What is the Lunar Sabbath? The Lunar Sabbath ignores the current weekly seven-day cycle in use today and uses the moon to determine when a new week begins and ends. So rather than observing the Sabbath on a seventh day of a recurring, uninterrupted seven-day week, Lunar Sabbatarians restart a weekly seven-day cycle near the beginning of each lunar month. A lunar month follows the phases of the moon. Yahweh's annual feast days are indeed determined by certain days of certain lunar months. Starting from the new moon, Yahweh's Passover is slain on the 14th day of the first month of each year. But those that subscribe to a lunar Sabbath calculation believe that the regular Sabbath falls on certain days of every month. They choose to keep the regular Sabbath on the 8th, 15th, 22nd, and 29th day of every lunar month. A few do it on the 7th, 14th, 21st, and 28th days of each lunar month, but for the sake of simplicity, we will address those who keep it on the 8th, 15th, and 22nd, and 29th days. Here's an illustration to help clarify. On average, one moon cycle is approximately 29.53 days in length. Because the lunar Sabbath ignores the current weekly cycle in use today, their Sabbath may fall in any day of the week. It completely depends solely on the moon phases. One major problem that the lunar Sabbath keepers face is the fact that there are extra days in the month which prevent them from being able to keep the Sabbath every seven days. The moon moves through one complete cycle in approximately 29.5 days on average. Since we cannot split a day and a half, this means that about half the lunar months will have about 29 days and the other half will have about 30 days. So what do lunar Sabbath keepers do on the first and 30th days of each month? This is where some may differ. While everyone calls them new moon days, some keep them as an extension of the Sabbath day on the 29th. This presents a problem though because there are scriptures which show men building, Exodus 40, 
and extensive traveling Ezra 7-9 on the new moon day. Also, it is not commanded anywhere that we must rest on any new moon day except the new moon day of the seventh month. The new moon on the seventh month is the Feast of Trumpets. This new moon would be what scripture alludes to in Amos 8-5, when some couldn't sell their grains on the new moon day. Others only refrain from commerce or employment on those days, but are free to do all other manner of work, such as mowing the lawn, gardening, digging ditches, building houses, traveling, and doing housework. What this would essentially mean is they don't truly get a rest every seven days. They would have to wait up to nine days to get a day of rest. For instance, if they kept the Sabbath on the 29th day of the month, they would have to be permitted to do various kinds of work on the 30th day of that month and the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th days of the following month. This means a person could potentially work eight days rather than the six that Yahweh commanded and rest on the ninth day instead of the seventh day that Yahweh commanded. With either method, Yahweh's command to work six days and rest on the seventh is ignored at the end of every month. Let us say that again. With either method, Yahweh's command to work six days and rest on the seventh is ignored at the end of every month. For six days, work may be done, but on the seventh day, there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work, for it is a Sabbath to Yahweh in all your dwellings. Leviticus 23. So already we have a serious problem with the Lunar Sabbath doctrine that is not compatible with the Word of God. But let's continue. There is certainly more to discuss. Do Moedim scriptures prove Lunar Sabbaths? What support is often cited for a Lunar Sabbath doctrine? The Lunar Sabbath doctrine is primarily founded upon three key scriptures. We're going to review these three scriptures that are foundational to the Lunar Sabbath believer, and they will be prominently quoted on their websites and study papers when trying to prove their doctrine. It is often said that these are the strongest points for this doctrine. Since they are considered to be the strongest points, we should look to see if they are effective in establishing any facts. The first scripture is found in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. The lights that are specifically mentioned are the sun, the greater, the moon, the lesser, and the stars. A lunar Sabbath believer will quickly point out that the moon, being one of the lights in the firmament of heaven, was created for seasons. The word translated as seasons in this scripture is the Hebrew word moedim, which most everyone will agree means appointed times. Here's the Strong's lexicon entry. We can clearly see that the intent of the word is for a specific appointed time for the congregation related to feasts and seasons. Now we will look at a second key scripture, the introduction to Yahweh's appointed times in Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 verses 1 through 3. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, The feast of Yahweh, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of Yahweh in all your dwellings. The word translated feasts in verse 2 is again the Hebrew word moedim. Notice that the weekly Sabbath is chiefly listed among the moedim. This is a very important scripture to the lunar Sabbath believer. For them, it proves that the moon must be involved in setting the time of the weekly Sabbath. Since the Sabbath is listed as one of the Moedim, along with the other festivals such as Passover and the Feast of Weeks, later on in this chapter, 
and Genesis 1.14 says the moon is for the Moedim, the logic of the lunar Sabbatarians is that the moon must be used to determine the regular weekly Sabbath. Let's now move on to the third and final scripture which lunar Sabbath believers use as the strongest points for their belief. Psalm 104 verse 19, He appointed the moon for seasons, the sun knows it's going down. Again, we have the Hebrew word moedim in this verse, translated seasons. For them, this scripture puts to rest any argument that the moon is not used to determine the weekly Sabbath, which is among the moedim. On the surface, this might sound like pretty good logic. Number one, the moon is for the moedim. Number two, the regular Sabbath is called moedim in scripture. And number three, therefore, the moon must somehow be used to determine the regular Sabbath. However, such logic is not based on all the facts. It is important that we base our beliefs on the full counsel of Yahweh and not what sounds plausible by just looking at a few scriptures and assuming we have found the truth. This logic does not center around the understanding that the moon is for Moedim. This logic centers around the belief that the moon must be used in setting all Moedim. It is very important to understand the difference. If there are examples in scripture where the moon is not used to determine a Moedim, then their entire argument falls completely apart. Why? Because if we have examples in scripture where the moon is not involved in setting some Moedim, it proves that the moon does not necessarily need to be involved in the weekly Sabbath either. So let's take a look. Judges chapter 20, verse 38. Now the appointed signal, Moed, between the men of Israel and the men in ambush was that they would make a great cloud of smoke rise up from the city. In this scripture, the word Moed is translated appointed signal. Moed is the singular form of Moedim. It comes from the same strong lexicon word number. Obviously, since the appointed signal was making a cloud of smoke rise up from the city, we would have to conclude that the moon had no involvement in this Moedim. Obviously, we can't use the moon to light a fire. Here in Numbers 28, the word is translated as appointed time. Command the children of Israel and say to them, My offering, my food for my offerings made by fire as a sweet aroma to me. You shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time, Moed. And you shall say to them, This is the offering made by fire which you shall offer to Yahweh, two male lambs in their first year without blemish, day by day, as a regular burnt offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. This is describing the daily sacrifice in the temple or the tabernacle. There were two lambs that were offered daily, one in the morning and the other in the evening. Yahweh says, you shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. The appointed time, or moed, here is in morning and evening. The moon is clearly not involved in determining the morning or evening, yet these are called moedim. And this is an important realization. As we see in Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, Moedim can be set by the sun, moon, or stars. So the question must be asked, in what way is the sun, moon, or stars involved with the Sabbath? Which one establishes the Sabbath? Well, if we were to count the seventh day, we must ask what defines a biblical day. It is sundown to sundown. Thus, it is the sun that is the primary instrument in defining the timing of the Sabbath, not the moon. This clearly demonstrates that some of Yahweh's Moedim do not involve the moon at all just like not all Moedim need the stars. It is true that Yahweh did appoint the moon for Moedim, but obviously not all of Yahweh's Moedim, as the lunar Sabbath keepers indicate. Therefore, their assertion that all of Yahweh's Moedim must involve the moon, and thus the Sabbath must also involve the moon, is simply not true. To prove this point even further, consider the context of Psalm 104. The high hills are for the wild goats. 
The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. If we choose to follow the belief of lunar Sabbath keepers, it becomes evident that they are adding to Yahweh's inspired word when they say Yahweh appointed the moon for all Moedim, and all Moedim must involve the use of the moon. To prove this notion wrong, we need only to check the context of Psalm 104. Take a moment and notice closely the previous verse, which uses a similar kind of sentence structure. It says, The high hills are for the wild goats. For a lunar Sabbath keeper to be consistent in his belief, consider the problem here. If Yahweh pointed the moon for all Moedim, and all Moedim must use the moon, then, by the same logic, Yahweh has also made the high hills for all wild goats, and all wild goats must use high hills. Of course, this is ridiculous, but it demonstrates a logical fallacy of being so dogmatic that all Moedim must use the moon. Otherwise, you could even go on to verse 20 and find that all the beasts of the forest need to wake up and creep at least once every night. In summary, the assertion that all of Yahweh's Moedim must use the moon is simply not true. The meaning of the word Moedim in Hebrew is broader than lunar Sabbath keepers make it out to be. And when you examine their very rigid interpretation of Psalm 104 more closely, it defies basic hermeneutics. And as we have already established, since the Sabbath is a counting of days, just like Genesis 1 reveals, it is the sun that is intended to be used in the count of days. We do need to be careful about things like this. Anyone can pull a scripture out of context here or there, and it might appear to fit their theology. But in order to fully understand the meanings of Hebrew words, we need to consistently examine the meaning and context of various scriptures. When we do this, the true meanings come to light. The sun is used for the Sabbath, not the moon. So for us, all this begs the question, if these scriptures are the strongest points for the Sabbath by the moon, and the interpretation is given is obviously quite groundless, what does that say about the weaker points of this doctrine? In the absence of any scriptures telling us that the moon must be involved in the weekly Sabbath, there is no real scriptural basis for the lunar Sabbath keeping. Do pinpointed Sabbaths prove lunar Sabbaths? The second point of the strongest points for Sabbaths by the moon are the places in Scripture that speak of Yahweh's Sabbath occurring on days of the month that lunar Sabbatarians consider to be the Sabbath. It is difficult to determine why it would be considered a strong point to begin with. Since there is a 1 in 7 chance of it happening with the weeks being independent of the moon cycle, it can happen almost twice a year on average. The fact that one of them would be mentioned in Scripture proves absolutely nothing. For a lunar Sabbath doctrine to be established, one would need to prove that the lunar Sabbath was on a particular day of the lunar month for two or more months in a row. This would be impossible with a recurring weekly cycle. But, in spite of valiant efforts by lunar Sabbatarians, they have yet to prove such a thing. There is only one or two places in Scripture that one might be able to prove Yahweh's Sabbath fell on a particular day of the month. The first one appears when you examine Exodus 16.1, which places the completion of Israel's journey to the wilderness of sin on the fifteenth day of the second month. Exodus 16.1 And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. On the following day, the sixteenth day of the month, Yahweh began to send manna from heaven and told them to gather twice as much on the sixth day, which would be the twenty-first day of that month. Exodus 16 verses 22 through 23 and so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is what Yahweh has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake what you will bake today. 
and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains, to be kept until morning. Assuming there weren't any days in Exodus 16 that Scripture doesn't mention anything about, this would place the seventh-day Sabbath on the 22nd day of the month. Of course, the fact that we can find a Scripture where the Sabbath happens to fall on the 22nd day of the month does not prove that we should accept the Lunar Sabbath doctrine. As previously mentioned, this can take place about twice a year on average. In reality, these passages do more damage to the Lunar Sabbath doctrine than help. Yahweh gave manna for six days, but withheld manna on the Sabbath. Exodus 16, verses 24 through 30. So they laid it up till morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to Yahweh. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And Yahweh said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Notice that it says, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Yahweh is trying to teach them which day the Sabbath was by giving them bread for two days. They were sent manna for the sixth and seventh days of the week, so they would not need to gather any on the Sabbath. With the lunar Sabbath, such principles falls into trouble at the end of the month. Did Yahweh give triple or quadruple the amount of manna so that Israel could keep the 29th, 30th, and 1st day of the following month? Or did he rain down double portion of manna on the 28th day of the month and allow them to collect manna again on the 30th day and the 1st day of the following month, the new moon days? Either way, we would conflict with the principle that Yahweh was teaching in Exodus 16. Either Yahweh would have to send a quadruple portion on the 28th day to cover the 28th, 29th, 30th, and 1st day, or he sends manna for the seven to eight days following the 29th day of the lunar month, which conflicts with the principle six days you shall gather it. Once we really start thinking about the lunar Sabbath doctrine, the more it just keeps falling apart. The second place in scripture where it might be demonstrated that there was a Sabbath on one of the lunar Sabbath days is during the week that Yeshua died on the tree. The day after his death was clearly some kind of Sabbath, John 19 verses 30 through 31. So when Yeshua had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. We know that Yeshua was killed on the day that the Passover lamb was slain, which would be the 14th day of the first month. If we believe that the Sabbath is to be a weekly Sabbath, that would indeed place the 15th day on the first month on the Sabbath. However, Matthew 12, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If Yeshua is speaking here of his time in the grave, and we take the expression three days and three nights literally, rather than understanding as some idiomatic expression, that would mean Yeshua died on the fourth day of the week. We know that the woman visited the tomb on the first day of the week and Yeshua had just risen. Tracing back three days and three nights in the tomb, we come to the fourth day of the week, commonly called Wednesday. This would mean that the Sabbath mentioned in John 19 was a feast day Sabbath rather than a weekly Sabbath. This would clearly contradict the Lunar Sabbath doctrine. 
But even if the three days and three nights was an idiomatic expression and Yeshua died on the sixth day of the week, as claimed by most of Christianity, then the presence of Yahweh's Sabbath on the 15th day of the month in Scripture does not always prove that it was on the 15th day of the month. Still, lunar Sabbath keepers regard these pinpointed Sabbaths and the dogmatic Sabbath is a moed we discussed earlier to be, as one person puts it, two strongest points for the Sabbath by the moon. All we can say is that such a threshold for establishing the truth of doctrine is way too low, especially for something as important as keeping the fourth commandment. The basis upon which we make statements as if they are fact is very important. If someone is making a factual statement, they better have proof to support it. Even in their two strongest points, there really isn't much strength to them at all. So which scriptures declare the real Sabbath? A real problem with the Lunar Sabbath doctrine is a lack of clear explanation anywhere in Scripture. It would be different if there are two Scriptures that seem to contradict one another, and they're trying to figure out what that seemed to be, but there is nothing in the weekly Sabbath pattern that contradicts the Scriptures. It simply does not seem like anyone reading the Sabbath commandment in Leviticus 23 or Exodus 20 along the side of the creation account is going to come up with a Lunar Sabbath doctrine. There is no commandment anywhere in the Scriptures which says, on the day following the new moon of each month, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of Yahweh your God. You shall do this for four weeks. Then, depending on whether the new month has started, you shall not engage in commerce or paid work for one or two days. Then you shall reset your week, and to the six days shall work be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest pattern. Obviously, Yahweh never said any such thing, but this is the commandment that most lunar Sabbath keepers follow. There is nothing more than a commandment of men because it's not found in scriptures anywhere. Let's remember that Yahweh said, Deuteronomy chapter 12, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. The lack of such a command to us is quite damaging to the Lunar Sabbath doctrine. It basically means we need to assume that Yahweh thought people knew these things already, and always would, so he didn't need to explain it. But, if Yahweh was expecting man to work six days and keep the Sabbath on the seventh day on an uninterruptible recurring pattern, it would be easy to see that all he needed to do was command us to do our work for six days and rest on the seventh. No further explanation needed. And that is exactly what he did. Exodus 20. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of Yahweh your God. Exodus 23. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. Exodus 31, work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is a Sabbath of rest holy to Yahweh. Exodus 31, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Exodus 34, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Exodus 35, work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to Yahweh. Deuteronomy 5, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. If we start without any creative ideas and just take the scriptures for what they say and not adding anything to it, we could only arrive at understanding that Yahweh's Sabbath continues as uninterruptible seven-day weekly cycles. There really isn't room for any other possible interpretations. Six days you labor and you rest on the seventh. To further illustrate that a recurring pattern was intended, let's go back to the beginning of creation and find the Sabbath that Yahweh himself established. As we know, Genesis 1 details six days that Yahweh used to create the heavens and the earth. Each of those days consisted of an evening and morning. Yahweh said that each of the evenings and mornings were specific days of a week. When the seventh day came into Genesis 2, Yahweh said that he rested from his work, 
then blessed and sanctified that day. Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Later, when giving the Ten Commandments, Yahweh said in Exodus 20, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth and the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, please pay close attention to what Yahweh has said. He blessed and sanctified one day. Twice he called it the Sabbath day, and twice he called it the seventh day. Meditate on this for a moment. The fact that Yahweh blessed and sanctified one specific day clearly demonstrates that a cyclical pattern is to follow. If that cyclical pattern is ever interrupted by an extra day, the one specific day, the seventh day, disappears. If Yahweh wanted to sanctify and bless the 8th, 15th, 22nd, and 29th days of the month, he would need to say that he blessed and sanctified specific days of the month. In other words, the blessings and sanctifying would have been in the context of multiple days of the lunar month, not one specific day of a seven-day week. Thus, the fact that there is one day called the Sabbath demonstrates that you can't interrupt the week. To further illustrate this, let's go back to the beginning and look at things from Adam's perspective. Yahweh had just created the heavens and the earth in six days. The Sabbath was sanctified and just passed. All was beautiful and perfect. Now what? The following day is obviously going to be a day for fulfilling Yahweh's command to work in the garden. If we were Adam, what would we do if six evenings and mornings go by? Obviously, we keep holy the seventh day, the one specific day that Yahweh commanded us to keep holy. Then what? We have additional evenings and mornings coming, so what do we do? The obvious choice is that we work six more and rest on the seventh day. The recurring seventh day week cycle is born from the moment Yahweh rested on the seventh day and told man to do the same. It is very obvious and not difficult to understand at all. Now suppose Yahweh instituted the lunar Sabbath at creation. After three weeks of following a recurring seven day week with observing the one specific day that Yahweh called the Sabbath, six more evenings and mornings go by. And what do we do? We rest again on one specific day, the seventh day. Then what? This is where even lunar Sabbatarians differ from one another. Some say, if we were Adam, we would rest on the eighth day, and then rest on the ninth day also, if the moon isn't new yet. But for what reason? This doesn't fit with the pattern Yahweh set forth in creation. We would no longer be keeping the Sabbath on the one specific day, the seventh day. To allow that pattern to be interrupted is to walk away from keeping the Sabbath on the one specific day that Yahweh made holy, the seventh day. Other lunar Sabbatarians would say that Adam would have only needed to refrain from commerce and or working for money on the eighth and ninth days. But in Adam's day, there wasn't anyone around to buy or sell to, and there certainly wasn't anyone to pay Adam for any work. In fact, with this understanding, Adam would have resumed his tending of the Garden of Eden on the day after the Sabbath and would have continued his work in the garden for a total of seven or eight days and then rested on the ninth day. The fact that he could continue working in the garden for seven or eight days violates the pattern that Yahweh set forth in Genesis. 
The seventh day passes by and is ignored with this understanding of the Sabbath keeping. The truth is, Yahweh didn't rest two days and he didn't rest for three days. He didn't say to do a half rest for one day or two days following the fourth Sabbath of the month. This is a commandment of men. Yahweh made only one specific day holy and one day only. He worked for six days and rested on the seventh day. It is his pattern that we're supposed to be following when it comes to keeping the Holy Sabbath, as he said here, Exodus 20. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. It says Yahweh blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. Notice it does not say God blessed the seventh day, and sometimes the eighth and ninth days are blessed and sanctified too, depending on whether or not the new moon has shown up yet. There is only one day out of the week that Yahweh sanctified, and that is the seventh day of the week. There is no such thing as an eighth-day week or a nine-day week. If there were, the pattern established that creation is thrown into confusion. A Sabbath could last not one day, but one or two or possibly three days, thereby causing the one-day sanctification pattern to disappear. If one chooses to work seven or eight days rather than rest on the extra days, it causes the seventh-day sanctification pattern to disappear. In acknowledgment of this contradiction, some Lunar Sabbath observers have started referring to the leftover days at the end of the month as non-days. In other words, those days at the end of the month aren't really days at all, they're just nothing. Of course, this is all they can really say, but as we know from Genesis 1, that a day consists of an evening and a morning. The days at the end of Yahweh's months are days with an evening and a morning, no matter how hard you try to ignore that. Two or three evenings and mornings do go by, so they are indeed days. We can't just hide our heads in the sand and pretend that they don't exist so that we can continue to believe what we want to believe. The truth is, the concept of a week extending eight or nine days is foreign in Scripture. In fact, it is a direct contradiction of Scripture. In Hebrew, the number seven and the word translated as week are both rooted in the same Hebrew root verb, which simply means seven. The Strong's lexicon defines week, number 7620, as Shabuah. And the theological wordbook of the Old Testament states Shabuah, a period of seven, a week, the Feast of Weeks. This term occurs 20 times in the Old Testament, always indicating a period of seven. Indeed, the word obviously comes to us from Sheba and could literally be translated always as a seven period. Notice that this reference to Shabuah is derived from Sheba. The word translated seven all throughout the scriptures is Sheba, Strong's 7651. Shabuah is just another form of the same word. Sheba is translated as seven over 350 times in the scriptures. Clearly, the word week cannot be separated from the number seven. The entire reason a week is called Shabuah is because it always contains seven days. This is being the case, a week cannot be eight or nine days. As we read in the theological wordbook of the Old Testament, the very word translated as week literally means a seven period. It would be a clear contradiction to say in Hebrew an eight-day week because you would be literally saying an eight-day, seven-day period. Just like a dozen always means 12 in our language, a week always means seven in Hebrew. Thus, an eight or nine-day week is totally foreign to the scriptures. To create one is to add to Yahweh's word. Of course, their solution is not to count those days and call them non-days because that's all they can really say. Their pat answer are those days aren't included in the count. 
But scripture says the opposite. Scripture says that an evening and morning are one day. We cannot call a day a non-day when scripture says that an evening and a morning consists of a day. And only one of the days they refer to as being a non-day is called a day in this verse. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks Yahweh of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that Yahweh's house should be built. With such lunar Sabbath logic, there are one to two days in a month in which you aren't even living within the context of a week. On the 30th day of the month and on the first day of the month, the week ceases to exist. The days are coming and going, but you need to pretend like they're not there. The truth is, if a week is interrupted by an extra day, we are no longer keeping the Sabbath on the seventh day. If we change the pattern that Yahweh set forth in creation, we are departing from Yahweh's example and keeping the Sabbath on some other day. The Sabbath would no longer be on the seventh day. Lunar Sabbath keepers wait on the day after the new moon to restart the week every month. But if weeks are determined by the moon phases, this would mean that Yahweh would have needed to create the earth, create the moon, put it in an orbit, and maybe even wait a day after the new moon before starting the first week. But the moon was not made and given in its place into the heavens until the fourth day. Genesis chapter 1, 16 through 19. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So there was no sun to give light on the earth and there was no moon to reflect that light in the earth, thereby creating the moon phases until the fourth day of the week. If we were to believe that each week is determined by the moon phases, this would be yet another direct contradiction. If Yahweh wanted to set a pattern of lunar Sabbath keeping for us, and the pattern is to be found in the creation of the world, why would he not create the world in one lunar month, not resting every seventh day, but resting on certain days of the month so that we have an accurate pattern of Sabbath keeping to go by? Of course, Yahweh could have created the heavens and the earth in an instant, but instead, he set in motion the concept of a week so that we would follow his example in working six days and resting on the seventh. The lunar Sabbath violates this pattern at the end of every month by doing physical labor six days and resting on the seventh, eighth, and even possibly the ninth days, or doing physical labor seven to eight days and resting on the ninth day. Leviticus 23, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of Yahweh in all of your dwellings. The most logical and clear choice here is to do just what Yahweh said. Work six days and rest on the seventh. This is the pattern given for us in the scriptures. Yahweh never specifies certain days of the month for his regular Sabbath, but a specific day of the month is given for each of his feast day Sabbaths. Does this not speak volumes? Leviticus 23. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is a Sabbath of Yahweh in all your dwellings. These are the feasts of Yahweh, 
holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is Yahweh's Passover, and on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to Yahweh. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Notice also that Yahweh needed to inform us that the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, being the fifteenth day of the first month, is a day that no customary work is to be done. If indeed the fifteenth day of each month is already a regular Sabbath, why would he need to inform us that it's a day of rest to begin with? The regular Sabbath is a memorial of the seven days of creation. The holy days scattered throughout the year are observed on certain days of the year as a memorial to other acts of Yahweh, such as the anniversary of when the children of Israel went out of Egypt, etc. But the Sabbath is given for us to remember the creation of the world and the rest as Yahweh did. We need to do what He did and do all of our work on six days, but rest on one specific day, the seventh day, the day that Yahweh made holy and commanded that we remember as one specific day, the seventh day, and we are to keep it holy. How would we count to Pentecost, or in Hebrew, Shavuot? One pretty obvious problem with the Lunar Sabbath doctrine is how it contradicts how the Feast of Weeks is commanded to be observed. We are told to count seven Sabbaths from the Sabbath that occurs during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This would consist of 49 days. Then it says that we would arrive at 50 days if we count to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Leviticus 23. And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Verse 16, count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to Yahweh. Let's now look and see if this fits as a possibility for a lunar Sabbath keeper. The small numbers will indicate the counting of 50 days from the day after the Sabbath during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As you can see in this calendar, the Feast of Weeks does not fit at all into the Lunar Sabbath model. In Scripture, Yahweh says that when we count 50 days, we will count to the day after the seventh Sabbath. In this Lunar Sabbath calendar, it is impossible for the 50th day to be the day after the seventh Sabbath. In fact, Pentecost, or Shavuot, can never be the day after the seventh Sabbath if we keep Lunar Sabbaths. Thus, Lunar Sabbath keeping again contradicts the Scriptures. What if we examine historical data? Historical information can be helpful if we are trying to discern the truth of something that doesn't seem very clear to us from Scripture. Although we believe the Scriptures speak clearly about the seventh-day Shabbat always occurring every seventh day, referencing historical works may be helpful for some who are not yet convinced. Lunar Sabbath keepers love to quote from a few encyclopedic references which say that the week was originally tied to the lunar calendar. But if we rely on such encyclopedias to tell us about historical data, we might indeed wonder if the moon had something to do with the setting of the weeks. But the truth is, most of those references are very old and are relying on theories that have their basis in the idea that the Bible is not authored and inspired by Yahweh. Rather, such articles are usually written by people who have the same historical data we do, but they generally don't even believe in the scriptures and view Yahweh to be just one of those tribal war gods. Because they don't believe in the scriptures, they make statements that the Sabbath was originally tied to the moon. This is due to the assumption that the children of Israel picked up the Sabbath keeping from being in Babylon or some other pagan culture that may have used the moon in setting monthly observances. But when researching this topic historically, we don't need to go any further in history than the time period that Yeshua the Messiah was born into. 
we do know that he kept the Sabbath day, and we do know that he kept it on the same day of the rest of the Jews in his day. For example, Luke 4. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The first century disciples also did the same. Acts 17. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. So really, the question is whether or not there are any first century eyewitnesses that may enlighten us as to whether the Jews at that time kept the Sabbath by the moon or by recurring seventh-day week. Can we find a clear answer to this question? Absolutely. To find a clear answer to this question, we'll examine the Talmud, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Josephus, and various Roman historians and writers of that period. The Talmud. First of all, please understand that we do not believe in following the Talmud or looking at it as being authoritative for doctrine. We are not going to be using it for the purposes of telling me how or when to keep the Sabbath, except that we know that the Messiah was in agreement with the weekly Sabbath of the first century Judaism. Therefore, we will only use the Talmud to help us understand what the views of the first and second century Judaism were. The Talmud is actually a rather good source because although it was compiled about 130 years after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, parts of it act as a historical reference for things that were going on when the temple was still standing. The Talmud is composed of three parts. There is the Mishnah, which is the central focal point of the whole Talmud. There is the Gemara, which is the commentary on the Mishnah. Then there is Rashi's commentary on both. The Mishnah simply records the beliefs of the first century Judaism. It speaks often about the views of two Jewish scholars called Shammai and Hillel. They were leaders of two often opposing schools of thought called houses. Hillel and Shammai lived from about 50 BCE to about 50 CE, so they were alive during Yeshua's ministry on the earth. The Talmud records about 300 differences of opinion between both houses. In Judaism, the views of the house of Hillel usually prevailed over the views of the house of Shammai. As you will see, the Talmud is pretty clear that the lunar Sabbath was not observed by Beth Hillel, Beth Shammai, or any Jewish man living in the first century. In our first example, we will be examining a difference of opinion between Hillel and Shammai on what blessing needed to be recited if the new moon falls on a Sabbath. Arzera replied, The new moon is different from a festival, since its mentioned is included in the benediction on the sanctity of the day in the morning and the evening prayers. It is also included in that of the additional prayer. But do Beth Shammai uphold the view that the mention of the new moon is to be included? Was it not in fact taught if a new moon falls on the Sabbath? Beth Shammai ruled, one recites in his additional prayer eight benedictions, and Bethelel ruled seven. This is indeed a difficulty. Of course, if they were really keeping the lunar Sabbath, the new moon can never fall on a Sabbath because the lunar Sabbath is never on the first day of the month. The difference of opinion would have been recorded if they kept the lunar Sabbath. Next, we'll see that the Mishnah records of the first century temple priests did with non-meat portions of the Passover lamb. Mishnah. The bones and the sinews and the nothar of the paschal lamb are to be burnt on the 16th. If the 16th falls on the Sabbath, they are to be burnt on the 17th, because they do not override either the Sabbath or the festival. With the lunar Sabbath, there is no such thing as the 16th day of the month falling on the Sabbath. These are not men who are trying to figure out how to fit a weekly Sabbath into a Babylonian life. It is a reference to the acts of the first century priests who certainly did not keep the lunar Sabbath. These are the practices observed during the temple era when Yeshua and his disciples lived. The Mishnah also recorded the following rule regarding the meal offerings. Mishnah. A man may offer a meal offering consisting of 60 tents 
and bring them in one vessel if a man said, I take upon myself to offer sixty tents, he may bring them in one vessel. But if he said, I take upon myself to offer sixty-one tents, he must bring the sixty in one vessel, and the one in another vessel. For since the congregation bring it on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, when it falls on the Sabbath, sixty-one tents as a meal offering, it is enough for an individual that his meal offering be less by one-tenth than that of the congregation. Obviously, this is a record of what went on while the temple was still standing because after that time, there would be no place to take it. With a lunar Sabbath, there is never a time when the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles falls on any day other than the Sabbath, the 15th day of the seventh month. Obviously, the recorded practices of the first century Judaism, while the temple still stood, indicate that they did not keep a lunar Sabbath. They kept the Sabbath on a recurring seven-day week, just as given in Genesis chapter 1, independent of the moon cycle. Therefore, since Yeshua kept the Sabbath along with the rest of the Jews of that period, he did not participate in a lunar Sabbath, a doctrine that doesn't appear to exist in Judaism at that time. We should also mention that if you ever read the Talmud in depth, you will come away with one clear impression. They debated about everything. Something as major of a change in when the Sabbath was observed ought to have at least been debated somewhere. After all, they debated about every fine point of the law. The lack of such a debate speaks volumes. Number two, the Dead Sea Scrolls and Josephus. The Dead Sea Scrolls are considered by scholars to be authored by the Essenes, a sect in first century Judaism. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are a number of extra-biblical scrolls which appear to shed light on what this sect believed and practiced. Understanding what they believed can be helpful in determining whether or not the Lunar Sabbath was being observed by mainstream Judaism at that time. It is generally undisputed, even by Lunar Sabbatarians, that the authors of these scrolls did not keep a lunar Sabbath. Rather, the calendrical scroll shows that they observed a recurring seven-day weekly cycle independent of the moon phases. We know of no one who disputes this. The calendrical scroll and the songs of the Sabbath sacrifice confirms this. Of course, lunar Sabbatarians generally will teach that this Jewish sect was wrong about the Sabbath. But in the book of Josephus, he speaks much about the Essenes. Josephus was a first-century Jewish historian who wrote much about the life in Judea during the first century. He goes into great detail as to how the practices of the Essenes were different than others. He mentions everything from how the Essenes don't carry anything with them when they travel, or to how they regard oil to be defilement. In Wars of the Jews, Josephus speaks of them in no less than 2,000 words, describing over 100 characteristics of their way of life. So, did Josephus mention that they kept a Sabbath on a day that was different than the rest of Judaism? Wars of the Jews. Moreover, they are stricter than any other of the Jews in resting from their labors on the seventh day. For they not only get their food ready the day before, that they may not be obliged to kindle a fire on that day, but they will not move any vessel out of its place, nor go to stool thereon. In this, Josephus even goes so far as to say that the Essenes are stricter than any other of the Jews in resting from their labors on the seventh day. Does it sound like there is any disagreement as to when the Sabbath was? Wouldn't it seem strange that Josephus would mention that the Essenes were stricter in their resting from the labors on the Sabbath, but not bother to mention that the Essenes held a Sabbath on a totally different day than the other Jews of that period? The fact is this. If the Essenes were keeping a different day than the rest of Judaism, Josephus would not have been able to say that they were even resting on the seventh day to begin with. He would have had to say they were resting on some other day. There is no record in the Dead Sea Scrolls of the Essenes disagreeing with other groups as to when the Sabbath was. In fact, 
there is no historical record of any Jewish sects disagreeing with each other on what day the Sabbath was. In another interesting note, Josephus speaks of one of the large towers that were built in Jerusalem, Wars of the Jews. And the last was erected above the top of Pastophoria, where one of the priests stood, of course, and he gave a signal beforehand with a trumpet. At the beginning of every seventh day, in the evening twilight, as also at the evening when that day was finished, as giving notice to the people when they were to stop work and when they were to work again. So his report is that a trumpet was blown at the beginning of every seventh day to mark when the people should stop working and begin working. As an interesting side note, archaeological finds concur with his comments about the place of trumpeting. When we excavated the beautifully paved Herodian Street adjacent to the southern wall and near the southwestern corner of the enclosure wall, we found a particular large ashlar block. On the inside was a niche where a man might stand, especially if the ashlar were joined to another which would enlarge the niche. On the outside was a carefully and elegantly inscribed Hebrew inscription, to the place of trumpeting to declare. If the restoration of the word declare is correct, the rest of the missing part of the inscription probably went on to tell us more about the declaring of the beginning and the end of the Sabbath. The stone had been toppled during the Roman destruction of the temple onto the street below where it had been laying for nearly 2,000 years until it was uncovered. It must have originally come from the pinnacle of the southwestern corner of the Temple Mount, from a spot on top of the temple chambers where a priest would blow the trumpet on the Sabbath Eve to announce the arrival of the Sabbath and the cessation of labor, and announce from the following evening the departure of the Sabbath and the resumption of all labor. The entire city was visible from this spot on the southwest corner of the Temple Mount, the clarion call of the trumpet would reach the farthest markets of the city. Such a scene is recounted by Josephus in his work, The Jewish War. Josephus also records that Agatharchides, a 2nd century BCE Greek historian, wrote something quite interesting about Ptolemy's defeat of Jerusalem. Against Apion, when Agatharchides had premised this story and had jested upon Stratonis for her superstition, he gives a like example of what was reported concerning us, and he writes thus. There are a people called Jews and dwell in a city, the strongest of all other cities, which inhabitants call Jerusalem, and are accustomed to rest on every seventh day, on which times they make no use of their arms, nor meddle with husbandry, nor take cares of any affairs of life, but spread out their hands in their holy place and pray till the evening. Now it came to pass when Ptolemy, the son of Lagus, came into the city with his army, that these men, in observing this mad custom of theirs, instead of guarding the city, suffered their country to submit itself to a bitter lord, and their law was openly proven to have commanded a foolish practice. Ptolemy was the general of Alexander the Great, who took over Jerusalem in 322 BCE. We see that the Jews would not defend themselves or take up arms on the Sabbath, which was every seventh day. If we were to describe the Sabbath-keeping practice of lunar Sabbatarians, we certainly wouldn't describe their Sabbath-keeping as something they did every seventh day. Rather, we would mention that they only kept a Sabbath on certain days of the month. Therefore, it's quite evident that Josephus was describing a practice laid out for us in the beginning, when God created the first week, and that is to rest every seventh day, without moon interruptions. Number three, Roman historians and writers. There seems to be a growing trend among lunar Sabbath keepers to refer to people who keep a recurring weekly Sabbath as Saturday keepers, as if we were following the pagan Roman week rather than the week that we believe to be in the scriptures. The truth is this. The Jews did not want the Holy Sabbath to be associated with Saturn, an idol that had nothing to do with Judaism. The name Saturday, or the day of Saturn, originated with the pagans, not the Jews. In fact, where we live, where 119 Ministries is headquartered, Saturday is called Sabado, 
Much of Latin America are the scattered Sephardic Jews. Sabado, linguistically speaking, came from the Hebrew word Shabbat, or Sabbath. Thus, a focus on the English word of Saturday, coming from the Roman day of Saturn, is in fact being very culturally centric. The Jews repeatedly and unequivocally refer to the seventh day of the week as the Sabbath. However, when it comes to determining whether or not the Jews of the first century kept the Sabbath using the lunar Sabbath, or, as we believe, a recurring weekly Sabbath, examining the records of Roman historians and other writers can be very helpful. By the admission of lunar Sabbath keepers and clear historical record, the Romans did not follow the moon phases when determining the weeks, or even the months for that matter. For this reason, we can look into the writings of Roman historians and other writers to see if the Romans associated the Jewish Sabbath with their Saturday or day of Saturn. If they did associate the Sabbath with their day of Saturn in the first century or before, this would be undeniable evidence that the Jewish week and the Roman week were both keeping the same recurring weekly cycle. As we will soon see, there is no doubt that Roman historians and other writers explicitly and repeatedly consider the time of the Jewish Sabbath keeping to be linked with the seventh day of the Roman week, which is repeating seven-day cycle independent of moon phases. 70 to 84 CE. Pratinus, a Roman soldier who lived from 40 CE to 103 CE, wrote a book on military strategy. In it, he writes, the defied Augustus Vespasian attacked the Jews on the day of Saturn, a day on which it is sinful for them to do any business. The original Latin version of this book has Sartinus for Saturn, confirming that the Romans associated the Sabbath day with their day of Saturn, which is on the seventh day of the week. This, of course, is where the Roman day of Saturday originated as the day of Saturn. Since this book was written a mere 14 years after Vespasian's or Titus' destruction of Jerusalem, this is obviously very strong historical evidence directly from a first century eyewitness tying in the Sabbath with the recurring seven-day cycle of the Romans. 63 BCE to 229 CE. Cassius Dio, a Roman historian who lived from 155 to 229 CE, using the historical annals of the Roman Empire, wrote about three battles which the Roman Empire had with the Jews. The first battle was during a time when Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus II, two brothers who were the offspring of the Maccabees, were engaged in a dispute over who would rule. The Romans, through the actions of Pompey, came in and settled the dispute, siding with Hyrcanus. While the speaking of Pompey's battle, the Sabbath is mentioned. The setting is 63 BCE. Most of the city, to be sure, he took without any trouble, as he was received by the party of Hyrcanus. But the temple itself, which the other party had occupied, he captured only with difficulty. For it was on high ground and was fortified by a wall of its own. And if they had continued defending it on all days alike, he could not have gotten possession of it. As it was, they made an excavation of what are called the days of Saturn. And by doing no work at all on those days, afforded the Romans an opportunity in this interval to batter down the wall. The latter, on the learning of the superstitious awe of theirs, made no serious attempts on the rest of the time, but on those days, when they came around in succession, assaulted most vigorously. Thus the defenders were captured on the day of Saturn, without making any defense, and all the wealth was plundered. The kingdom was given to Hyrcanus, and Aristobulus was carried away. Cassius Dio, Roman History So the Romans took advantage of the fact that the Jews would not work on the Sabbath. And when was the Sabbath? Again, the weekly Sabbath coincides with the Roman days of Saturn. The second battle listed by Cassius Dio occurred in 36 BCE. This is the one that resulted in the very first King Herod coming to power. 
The Jews, indeed, had done much injury to the Romans, but they suffered far more themselves. The first of them to be captured were those who were fighting for the precinct of their God, and then the rest on the day, even then called the day of Sadr. And so excessive were they and their devoted to religion that the first set of prisoners, those who had been captured along with the temple, obtained leave from Sosius when the day of Saturn came round again, and went up into the temple and there performed all the customary rites together with the rest of the people. These people Antony entrusted to a certain Herod to govern, but Antigonus he bounded to a cross and flogged, a punishment no other king had suffered at the hands of the Romans, and afterwards slew him. Cassius Dio, Roman History. Note that Cassius Dio reports the Jews as keeping the customary rites at the temple on the day even then called the Day of Saturn. This indicates that the Sabbath wasn't only called the Day of Saturn during his lifetime, but it was also called the Day of Saturn back in 36 BCE, well before Yeshua was born in Bethlehem. Next, he records that 70 CE Jerusalem destruction was on the Sabbath, which he again calls the Day of Saturn, 70 to 229 CE. Thus was Jerusalem destroyed on the very day of Saturn, the day which even now the Jews reverence most. From that time forth, it was ordered that the Jews who continued to observe their ancestral customs should pay an annual tribute of two denarii to Jupiter Capilane. In consequence of this success, both generals received the title of imperator, but neither got that of Judaicus, although all the other honors that were fitting on the occasion of so magnificent a victory, including triumphal arches, were voted to them. Cassius Dio, Roman History. So his report is that the Jews kept the Sabbath on the day of Saturn from 63 BCE up until his day, no later than 229 CE. His report also agrees with Frontius' account of the 70 CE battle. 100 CE, the historian Cornelius Tacitus, 56 CE to 117 CE, after suggesting that the Jews kept the Sabbath out of laziness, also associated the Sabbath with the Roman idol Saturn. They are said to have devoted the seventh day to rest, because that day brought an end to their troubles. Later, finding idleness alluring, they gave up the seventh year as well to sloth. Others maintain that they do this in honor of Saturn, either because their religious principles are derived from the Idae, who are supposed to have been driven out with Saturn and become the ancestors of the Jewish people, or else because of the seven constellations which govern the lives of men. The star of Saturn moves in the topmost orbit and exercises peculiar influence, and also because most of the heavenly bodies move around their courses in multiples of seven. Again, the fact that a pagan associated Sabbath-keeping with Saturn demonstrates that the Roman week's day of Saturn, Saturday, was concurrent with what Yahweh calls the Sabbath day. Tacitus is an eyewitness from the first century who has no axe to grind in regards to when the Sabbath should be observed. He wrote this a mere 30 years after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. 28 B.C. to 1 B.C.E. Tibullus, a Latin poet who lived from 54 B.C.E. to 19 B.C.E., references the Sabbath in one of his elegies. The poet is quoted by J. Hugh Michael in his paper entitled The Jewish Sabbath in Latin Classical Writers. In this journal article, he says, Tibullus, again, gives us a glimpse of the influence of the Sabbath on the Romans. The poet, sick in a foreign land, complains of his loneliness. Neither mother nor sister has he there to nurse him nor is Delia with him. She, who had inquired of all the gods before permitting him to leave the city, says Tibullus, all promised a return, yet did nothing stay her from looking back in tears and tear on my journey. Yea, even I, her comforter, after I had given my parting charge, 
sought still in my disquiet for reasons to linger and delay. Either birds or words of evil omen were my pretexts, or there was a holy day of Saturn to detain me. The day of which the poet speaks, of course, is Saturday, or as Poskate puts it, the Jewish Sabbath, on which no work was to be undertaken. And in the implication is clear that unwillingness to set off on a journey on the Sabbath day was no unusual thing among the inhabitants of Rome. For Tibullus is enumerating the common reasons for the postponement of journeys of which he was only too ready to avail himself, the Jewish Sabbath in the Latin classical writers. It is interesting that Romans would have any concern at all about traveling on the Sabbath. J. Hugh Michael references another writing by the poet Ovid, who lived from 43 BCE to 17 CE. Still more impressive is the witness of Ovid. In the Ars Amortoria, he instructs a young Roman who is desirous of finding an object for his affections how he should set about his search. The quest need not take him far afield. There is no lack of suitable damsels in Rome. The poet even specifies the parts of Rome where the quest of the amorous youth is most likely to be crowned with success. He should not neglect Venus, the seventh day observed as holy by the Syrian Jew. The first part of this direction can only mean that the youth should visit the temple of Venus when her grief for Adonis was commemorated on the anniversary of his death. Similarly, the second part must mean that he should attend the Sabbath services held in the Jewish synagogues. Is it possible to attach any other meaning to the advice that the youth should not avoid the seventh day observed by the Syrian Jew? And what meaning is there in the council unless Roman maidens won't to attend those services? Is it not easy to think that it was the poet's intention that the young Roman should be enamored of a Jewess? The Jewish Sabbath and Latin classical writers. The work that J. Hughes Michael references is Ars Amortoria, which is written approximately 1 BCE. Thus, it is evident that the Romans were associating the seventh day of their Roman week with the Sabbath. But was Sabbath keeping really this tied to their culture? 119 CE. The Sabbath does appear to be closely entwined to the weekly cycle of the first century Romans. This is evidenced by the writings of Suetonius. Suetonius was a Roman historian who wrote Lives of Twelve Caesars in 119 CE while describing the life of Tiberius Caesar. The grammarian Diogenes, who used to lecture every Sabbath at Rhodes, would not admit Tiberius when he came to hear him on a different day, but sent a message by a common slave of his, putting him off to the seventh day. When this man waited before the emperor's door at Rome to pay his respects, Tiberius took no further revenge than to bid him return seven years later. Suetonius, the life of Tiberius. Rhodes was a major schooling center for Roman families. It's interesting that the seventh day is referred to as the Sabbath in Roman literature, especially when it is written by a pagan historian who was even the Roman emperor's secretary for a time. Wikipedia entry on Suetonius. It appears that J. Hugh Michael's reference to the Roman poets, as well as this reference from Suetonius, is a strong indication that the Seventh-day Sabbath had become more tied to Roman society than most people actually realize. Possibly, this is one of the reasons Josephus said, the masses have long since shown a keen desire to adopt our religious observances, and there is not one city, Greek or barbarian, nor a single nation to which our custom of abstaining from work on the seventh day has not spread and where our fasts and the lighting of lamps and many of our prohibitions in the matter of food are not observed. In consideration of these things, it appears to us that the Romans picked up the recurring seven-day week from the Jews, not the other way around. For five centuries or longer, the Romans had kept an eight-day week, 
with the days being named by the letters of the alphabet A through H. They did not keep a seven-day week until they came into more contact with Sabbath-keeping Jews in early centuries BCE. The fact that they named the days of the week after various planetary idols does not prove that they originated the recurring seven-day week. The naming of the days after planetary idols appears to have originated with either the Babylonians or the Hindu civilization, not the Romans. So, if you are a lunar Sabbath keeper, the obvious question for you is, if the Jews in the first century kept the lunar Sabbath and only later adopted what you would call the Roman week, why do the first century Romans keep saying the Jewish Sabbath is on their day of Saturn or Saturday? The obvious answer to the obvious question is that the first century Jews, including Yeshua the Messiah and his disciples, kept the same recurring seven-day week as the Romans. It is a historical fact that the same week and day sequence exists to this day and has not changed. Yahweh has preserved his holy Sabbath. The Conclusion Historically, lunar Sabbath keepers believed that the lunar Sabbath was observed by first century Judaism, but was lost some time after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. But even if one rejects all the evidence to the contrary, it would seem quite impossible for every Sabbath keeper scattered all throughout the world to simultaneously drop a supposed lunar Sabbath, all without a trace of evidence to such a dramatic change. The clear historical record is that the Jews of the first century kept the Sabbath just as we do on a recurring seven-day week. Scripturally, you can look from Genesis to Revelation, but you will not find a single commandment to keep the lunar Sabbath. Just as Yahweh has ensured that his inspired word was not lost in antiquity, he also protected his holy Sabbath. Adam kept it, Noah kept it, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob kept it. Joshua kept it, the righteous judges and kings kept it. The prophets of Yahweh kept it. The returning exiles who were very meticulous about the Sabbath kept it. And we know that Yeshua and his disciples kept it, proving that Yahweh preserved his Sabbath up until the first century CE. The same is true today. Yahweh has preserved his word, his name, and his Sabbath for us today. We would also like to review some questions and answers about the lunar Sabbath. Number one, please explain Ezekiel 46 verse 1. How can the gate be opened and closed at the same time? This is grounded in the premise that there must always be six consecutive working days without interruption. But whether you keep the lunar Sabbath or a weekly recurring Sabbath, the six working days will be interrupted by the feast like the last day of unleavened bread, which falls on the 21st day of the first month, and day of atonement, which falls on the 10th day of the seventh month. The point was that the gates would be open when the people gathered for worship. The Sabbath and new moon are the regular exceptions to the gate being closed, but there are other exceptions regardless whether or not you believe in a recurring weekly Sabbath. Thus, Ezekiel 46 proves nothing either way. Number two, how does the prophecy in Lamentations chapter 2, verse 6 apply to the Sabbaths and feasts? They were forgotten in Zion because they were carried away into captivity, the very thing that Lamentations is mourning about. Number three, why couldn't they wait for the Sabbath and new moons to be over in Amos 8.5 if we are free to buy and sell on the new moons? Amos would have been referring to the new moon of the seventh new moon of the year, which is the Feast of Trumpets. This is the only new moon in Scripture where work is expressly forbidden, so Amos would have been referring to that. Number four, explain the offerings for the daily, the Sabbaths, and new moons in Numbers 28 verses 4 through 15. Why are there no provisions for new moon offerings that fall on the Sabbath or Sabbath offerings that fall on a new moon? There didn't need to be. One would just perform whatever offerings were required for the kind of day it was. 
Number five, please explain Amos chapter five, verses 25 through 27. Who is Sikuth and Kion? And what exactly is this astral mighty one, star god, and does it correlate to Saturday? Kion was a Babylonian idol. Didn't they keep a lunar week? In our mind, not relevant to anything. The Romans happened to call the seventh day the day of the Saturn, but the Jews always called it Shabbat. Number six, when Yahweh commanded them to march around the walls of Jericho for seven days, wouldn't that have been violating the Sabbath? No. The thing to remember about ancient cities in the land of Israel is that they generally covered a relatively small piece of land. Ancient Davidic Jerusalem was only about 12 acres in size and had a population of about 2,000. That increased about 32 acres in size under Solomon's rule, with a population of about 5,000. Archaeological finds do indicate that Jericho was fairly small in size. Archaeological digs indicate that the walls of ancient Jericho enclosed an area of about 5 to 6 acres in size. John Garstein, The Walls of Jericho In light of this, a person walking around the walls of Jericho would need to walk about 700 yards max. The traditional Sabbath day's journey mentioned in Acts 1.12 is about 1,000 to 1,200 yards. We hope that this teaching has blessed you. And remember, continue to test everything. Shalom. For years, we've been told that Sunday is now the accepted day of the Lord. Ministers, pastors, teachers, all saying the same thing. But what if they were wrong? How can the fourth commandment be disregarded by millions every week? What scriptures are used for their defenses? If the word of God truly stands forever, how can man's word dictate otherwise? What authorizes any man, church, or denomination to alter the Word of God? If the Sabbath was given to man, why should one ever think that God would take it away? Are you ready to confront your faith? Are you willing to let traditions fall? Learn what has been covered by centuries of man-made doctrines. Discover the truth as revealed in the scriptures of how the Sabbath is the sign between the Father and those who pursue after His ways. The Sabbath Day from 119 Ministries. In a world of depressing headlines and uncertainty all around us, good news is very welcome. Many have heard of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Messiah, and that is most certainly good news. But have you heard of all of the good news? Have you heard the whole gospel? There is so much more good news. Have you heard the gospel of the kingdom or the eternal gospel or even the mystery of the gospel? Learn why our Messiah had to be resurrected and see the complete biblical picture that was always intended. Prepare to be amazed and humbled by examining the gospel from the perspective of the whole Word of God. Prepare to take the gospel you have known, combine with the rest of the good news, and watch as the deeper purpose of our Creator's plan is unlocked in beautiful perfection. The time is now to experience the whole gospel and the joy of all of the good news. Watch What is the Gospel? from 119 Ministries are free online or order the two-disc DVD set at testeverything.net.